This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount. Before I get to that, I want to highlight a couple of products. So footwear has been a big issue, and we all know that these heavy-duty work boots cause a lot of issues with joint health and fatigue. Listening to the responders in the field, the military in the field, 5.11 have reverse engineered and created some incredible footwear that is much more lightweight, just as durable, and minimizes both fatigue and damage to the joints. One of those is the Norris sneaker. I have a pair of those myself. They are incredible. And the other one is the AT trainer that has the Atlas system, which spreads the weight of the load over the entire foot, thus reducing fatigue and long-term damage. Aside from footwear, they have the backpacks. I have the AMP pack myself. They're civilian clothes, the jeans, the shorts. I absolutely live in these days. The flashlights are some of the brightest I've seen, and they last an incredibly long time on one charge. The list goes on and on. Now, because 5.11 cares about you, the tactical population, they are offering you a discount of 15% on every purchase that you make. So go to 5.11 Tactical, use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, and save 15% every time you shop. And if you want to learn even more about the company, listen to episode 338 with co-founder and CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 450 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Major James Capers. Now, Major Capers is one of the earliest members of Marine Recon in the Vietnam era, the early Vietnam era, but also was one of the very first African Americans in that division and the first at multiple ranks that he held. What makes this conversation so powerful is here is a man who is now 84 years old, that as a child entered the Marines, entered combat, volunteered for combat in Vietnam, saw horrific things, had to do horrific things, and to this day, he carries that with him. So I urge you not only listen to the full conversation, but make it to the very end where you will hear one of the most powerful closing thoughts I have ever had in 450 episodes. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, Please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, hit subscribe, leave feedback. I love reading your thoughts on the podcast and leave a rating. Every five-star rating this podcast gets elevates it, make it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library, as I mentioned, 450 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to everyone else who I know needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Major James Capers. Enjoy. Well, Major Capers, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for inviting me to your home. Um, here in North Carolina um, and uh, taking the time to talk to me today and, and come on the Behind the Shield podcast. James, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Especially with a name like James, you got to be okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so obviously this is an audio recording. For people um, that are listening, where on planet Earth are we sitting right now? I live at uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, 
about 20 minutes outside of Camp Lejeune. You know, I've been in this home for going on 43 years now. And uh, my wife and my son, who have since passed on, so I live here uh, with the assistance of some stepchildren like Bill and Carmen. They help me out quite a bit. But all is well. Absolutely. Well, I want to start chronologically mm-hmm. at the beginning because okay. I know your your early life obviously is has a lot of um, depth to it, and obviously you know there's 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 things in your early life that definitely carry over later in life. So tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Yeah, I was born in Bishopville, South Carolina, in 1937. Or so they tell me. I don't have a birth certificate. So a lot of my early childhood is what the family told me. Aunts and uncles. And they're all gone now. I have no biological family anymore. And so most of my memory is what I was told about South Carolina My folks were sharecroppers. In other words, we shared the crops with the folks who had the money, which means that being African-Americans, we weren't called African-Americans back in those days. Uh, We worked for the white landowners, and we picked the cotton, crops the tobacco, and worked the farm, And at the end of the year, you're supposed to share uh, the profits with the owner. Didn't happen very much. We didn't get very much. And by the time you bought seed and got ready for the next season, you didn't have anything. So you had to kind of improvise. And and it wasn't just us. A lot of the African-American families back in those days in the rural south you know, I'm about four or five generations away from slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how old I am. I have no birth certificate, and there is no pictures of me as a child. So a lot of what I will tell you is what I was told uh, growing up. And in the South, of course, you can read many books these days that talks about you know, the, the difficult times in the South, uh, no respect, and you didn't own the property, and and uh, you didn't have a lot going for you. But a lot of times there were people there who were benevolent, who went out of their way to help you, didn't matter if they were black or white. Uh, as the story goes, uh, when I was sick. I was given to a white family who took me in and I don't I can't confirm any of these stories, but these are the stories that I was told as growing up and after we moved to Baltimore. You know, my father did a little time in a chain gang, very brutal system of justice or lack of justice back in those days. Mm, for something that he was innocent for as well. 
Mm-hmm. And he, it's for something he was falsely accused of, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. And he moved on to Baltimore, and eventually, as I was cured by this family, I don't have any no names. I have no idea who they were, but these are stories that was handed down to me. So I was lucky in a way that I survived. And early on, uh, the first James Capers Jr. passed away. I was the last James Capers Jr. And uh, I have no birth certificate, as I said. So the family members passed away in early childhood. Back in those days, you didn't have access to doctors or hospitals, those type of things. And uh, so as I was told, I was given to this family, and obviously they must have gotten me back to, to health, and we moved on to Baltimore, was left to the family, and joined up with my father. And uh, I went to school there, and uh, I didn't go to what they would call a kindergarten or first grade. I had no memories of going to any schooling in South Carolina. But when I got to Baltimore, they put me in a class that they thought I could handle. So I went to school there, and I went to middle school, and uh, went to church, and met friends, and was amazed at what I saw there. A little different than the cotton fields and tobacco fields and corn fields. Row houses and there was lights and stores on the corners. And, you know, I made friends. And in 1956, I graduated high school. And uh, back in those days, when you turn 17, 18, you expect it to register for the draft, which meant you were probably going to go in the Army. So uh, my buddy and I, he's gone now. Uh, we both decided to join the Marine Corps, and off we went to Paris Island, and the adventure started. And that was Pitt, your friend? Yes. Yes, sir. Now, just to go back for a second, because I was not mm-hmm. was curious, one thing that just literally astounds me is you grew up when world war ii finished which is also an interesting thing because your instructors in the military were vets as well but through your lens now with this whole career Mm -hmm. that you've had one thing that i don't understand is how we went to war with the germans and the japanese and all colors and creeds fought side by side even though you know when i when i explore it a little more deeply some of those units were segregated they all laid their lives on the line for the greater good and then fast forward to the 50s right after world war ii and people are being hung from you know black people are being hung from trees again and Mm -hmm. so how you know what was it what was broken that we went through a world war that was based on on race hate and genocide and all these things and yet, when that war finished, that that was still allowed to thrive in the U.S., that always baffled me. Well, because that was the law of the land. Uh, even though the Civil War was many years over, but 
Then you had the Night Riders and the KKK and and uh, basic segregation never went away. You can watch the news from yesterday. You know, it's still an issue that we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Everyone is not bad, but this is a, a systemic problem that we've had uh, with that kind of problem uh, and for us I say us as a people in the slavery years and just during those years uh, the African American slave was not allowed to be educated couldn't own property couldn't marry or you couldn't buy your freedom. Every civilized nation in the world, those things were, even in the Roman days, you could buy your freedom. You could be educated, but not the African-American slave. All those things was denied. And so we're still quite a few generations away from freedom as is accepted because of your your valor and your sacrifice you made for this country. Uh, you know, I taught for many years in the military. I was director of a military school. And a lot of the youngsters who come into the Marine Corps or other services didn't know about the history because at times it moved on. And a lot of the history of what we as a people went through was systematically taken out of the history books. It didn't talk about a lot of the heartaches and you know, the 15 million Africans who died on the way to this this country. You know, so there are a lot of a lot of heartaches and things that's hard to. Uh, uh, to talk about, to even to understand how could human beings do this to other other people. Um, I went through that, uh, but then on the other end of the spectrum, I was taken in by a white family who fed me, they closed me, someone must have held me, laid me down and stood watch over me while I slept. So... Uh, I didn't come away from the South with any any anger or bitterness because I didn't see that. My family has obviously uh, protected me and fed me, but then handed me off to a family that didn't look like me, but they had a good heart to take in a black child. So looking at that scenario, uh, this is probably uh, doing uh, World War II because I I have two birth dates. You know, I don't have a birth certificate, so I guess they roll the dice and <laughs> give me a birth. <laughs> so there are a lot of things that occurred with my family history. And there are some things I know to be true, 
And there are some things I'm just rolling the dice and thinking that this is what must have happened. But with respect to how young Americans went overseas and and uh, and came home and was still couldn't ride a bus or eat in a restaurant, uh, you know, it's amazing how uh, the ones who had the power to make those decisions were just not willing to accept those who risked their lives and laid down their lives as equals. You know, and I'm sure you know a lot about my career and how I had to struggle and, uh, you know, and finally get to the point where I was considered the best of the best. Yes, sir. Well, and you see, and that's what... That's what confuses me, because if you look at the history of slavery, and I know mm -hmm. I'm in Charleston staying tonight, and we went last time we were there, there's the Slavery Museum. And what it what it screams to me is the root of so many problems, whether it's, you know, the, the health problem we have at the moment, you know, the mental health, the addiction, all these things is the foundation. I mean, the 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 addiction problem we have, the foundation is racism. Harry Anslinger back in the, the 30s, but um, is... With slavery, only a few people would have really gained from that. The people selling, you know, the African people in Africa itself, the British making the trades, the Americans yeah. buying, but it was only the plantation owners and some, you know, some few out there. So that's what is crazy is this this issue that we have now, if you reverse engineer it, it's still down to, to power and greed of a very few people. The, the yeah. blacksmith in Iowa had no idea probably that there was a slave trade going on, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but now, you know, here we are and, and this, this, you know, in some areas, this racism has, has become so, so cancerous when it came from just a few people wanting human beings, regardless of what color they were, to work for free so they could be rich. That's fundamentally what it was, and that's just the most disgusting notion. Well, the Romans had slaves, but the difference was they could buy their freedom, they could marry, they could be educated, but the black slave was denied all of those benefits. We didn't have that. Uh, and it took a civil war with hundreds of thousand dead Americans to get beyond those years. And we still, even after that, we still had the KKK and the Knight Riders and uh, the greedy plantation owners. And when you look at the Walmart guy, old Sam Walton, in Arkansas, he made a lot of his money, and I guess this is pretty accurate, selling stuff to uh, black folks on the plantations. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a lot of history behind uh, old Sam Walton and how he made a lot of his money. He probably wasn't the only one. When I left the Marine Corps, I joined an organization as vice president, and they sent me to Harvard Business School. And uh, I have been educated, but not to that level. Uh, 
and I learned a lot of things about the Hershey guy and the Walton guy and a lot of the ones that uh, had the money. Uh, it's amazing how how we look at these organizations now, and they made billions of dollars on the backs of poor farmers, not just black farmers, but white farmers also. Absolutely. And nowadays, uh, that goes on. And most of this stuff is, you know, I lectured it for many, many years about what I saw and what I lived, uh, not only in combat, but just coming home and being denied the things that I thought I was fighting for. But I was strong enough to, to realize that, you know, I'll, I'll make this work best way I can. And I had some hard times, obviously, in the military, you have rank and those types of things. And, and, you know, my rank didn't come as easily as I thought it was going to. You know, but I survived and in spite of that and just reading about, uh, there's a, uh, Dr. John Hope Franklin. He wrote a book from slavery to freedom. And that was my Bible. It told me so much. Dr. John Hope Franklin from slavery to freedom. He's passed away now, but the book uh, is very good source of understanding the history of this country and how we evolved to where we are today and how it still lingers on. And not just with corrupt policemen or this, that, but uh, there's so much that we can learn from that particular book. And when I was lecturing at the military school there, I used that as my Bible to talk about, you know, how this country evolved, the right things and the wrong things. And I would give my perspective on racism and because we went through a period of time in, in the military that uh, we had some real issues there. A lot of the youngsters were not getting promoted and there were things were going wrong and and so the leaders didn't get it. And so they were mid-level guys like me who picked up the books and was, here's what happened. You can read it for yourself. So there's a lot of things that I read and talked about and to those young military people or civilians is willing to accept the reality. Here's how we got to this point. Yeah, I think it's, it's important for people to understand why. Same with the Native American story. Yeah. You know, if you look yeah. at the Thanksgiving story, it yeah. doesn't seem to be yeah. as accurate as what actually yeah. happened. Yeah. Well, I want to get to something we talked about before we started recording, because I think it's important as well. One of the issues that I've seen with my generation is they were raised on... Uh, basically like a Hollywood facade of what a man is, yeah. you know, this two dimensional Rambo type. And, you know, I think it's very dangerous as you progress into later years, especially in our professions, if you buy into that, the beautiful part of your story is meeting Dottie. So, um, tell me about, um, 
you know, tell me about that. You're in school and, and, and how that romance evolved, because obviously that's going to be a through line through your whole, your whole life here. Well, uh, she denied it. <laughs> when I was walking by one day and I saw this beautiful young lady there and I stopped and just got my attention. And through the years, I always told her that she winked at me. And we always laughed about that. But 15 years old, 16, love of my life, my only real love. And uh, uh, we married 50 years. And uh, it was funny things that occurred in my class. Uh, uh, my old buddy Pitt, we were in the same class, and and we were sort of the romantic couple in the high school there, and and my teacher, they all sort of caught on to it, and they would send uh, Dottie down to my class. The, the boys were in one class, and the girls in another class. There was no co-ed classes back in those days, so. Uh, her teacher would send her down to my classroom ostensibly to tell the teacher there something. And when she walked in the door, all the guys was like, ah, Jim, there she is, there she is. And, and uh, it was sort of a romantic thing there. And as we were married and uh, had a life together and a child, you know, when she was dying of, uh, she was in stage four cancer. She died of cancer of the liver, and she died in the hospice program. And I moved into the room there with her. You know, I'd lost my son by that time. And so we would sit there a lot at night, and we'd talk about those early days. And she had her version of it, and I had my <laughs> version of it. But it was a wonderful relationship, and that I felt love first time in, in my life that uh, I knew that she loved me. I felt it. And then she went on to college and uh, she got a scholarship and I went on to the Marines and did three years of hard infantry time and deployed most of that time. Killed my first man barely out of my teens in Lebanon in 1958. Scary thing, but you're trained to do certain things, hold this post, and I was given this post to hold. And I held it, but some other folks wanted it. So I went through these type of things and in my first three years in the Marine Corps, and I, I stayed in touch with we wrote. Didn't have computers and all those things back in those days. So when I came home on leave, uh, I'd go see her and, you know, we'd go to movies and all those type of things. Didn't have much money back in those days. But it was something that, you know, keeps me going today. Those wonderful memories. You know, we'd go to the movie and go do different things. And finally... uh my three years was up. I'd made married to a sergeant. And, you know, I guess I learned quick like. Mm 
I was a good student, and and they told me I could uh, get out, or my contract was up, or I could stay in the Marine Corps, and never had a real job. And I talked to Dottie about it, and I told her that, you know, my time is up now, and uh, I could uh, get out of the Marine Corps and come home, or I could stay in. And she said, well, what will you do? Where will you go? And I told her I'd never been to California. I asked her, would she like to go with me? Hadn't bothered asking to marry me or anything like that yet. But she said, yeah, right away. It was one of those things that meant to be. So she did wink at you then? <laughs> <laughs> she always denied that. <laughs> but she was funny. She had a this great sense of humor. Great sense of humor. We had a wonderful time. And that day on the 28th of June at 2.31 in the afternoon, she closed her eyes. And I told her I would I see her again. And uh, for me, the clock is ticking. I'll be 84 this year, and I went to visit her. I said earlier, I went to visit her all into National Cemetery a few weeks ago, and I put some flowers on her graves, and I gave my son a teddy bear, made my report to her. I said, you know, babe, there's going to be a young man named James coming to to talk to me about our lives. <laughs> so I better, better get this together. But yeah, she passed away and uh, I crashed and burned. Couldn't handle it. You know, I lost my child and lost her. And so I went away to California, lived in a hotel and got an apartment and went to therapy. Every Tuesday at one o'clock, I went to therapy. But I was able to, I did the documentary when I was living out there, and I wrote the book, made some friends, and uh, I'm going back next weekend said for another mission, I guess, with the Gold Star Widows. But Dottie was special. Uh, she was an artist. She took care of the house the baby and and uh, I don't know that I could have had a better life than anybody else well, I mean she sounds amazing I mean, we'll, we'll get into it as we you know talk about deeper in your career but I think one of the big the, the, the lesser discussed areas is the, the partner well we're out you know in the military and in, in fire and police whatever it is they're they're everything, especially yeah. if they have a child and you had a special needs child. So, I mean, that's an even, you know, higher um, level of care. But, um, you know, even when you transitioned out, and we'll, we'll get to that, but, you know, your your struggles when you first came back to the U.S., I mean, so many relationships fall apart. And I know you guys, you know, had some struggles, but, I mean, yeah, to, to meet your childhood sweetheart and them stand by you through that whole thing, you know, and then, you know, pass away in your arms. I mean, amongst this this tragic story and this, this you know, story of bravery that we'll get to is this beautiful love story. I think it's important for people to, to hear that, you know, that, that 
just because you're a soldier or a marine or a firefighter or a police officer doesn't mean your marriage is doomed. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have to, you know, be promiscuous or anything else that, you know, that, that soft side, you can be a romantic and still be a marine recon, you know, warrior as well. That's why I'm going to California next week. I want to tell those young ladies who lost sons or husbands about my life with my wife, and she's gone now, and I've had to do a lot of praying. Uh, So I've always believed in God, still believe in God, but it was kind of tough. I'm sure. I lost everything I cared for and loved, and it's all gone now. All gone. I lost my mother, my father, lost my sister, my brothers, all in. They're all gone now. So I had those memories of her because she, she was the anchor. She kept the family going. And, you know, uh, when I came home from Vietnam, they said I would never walk again. And she said, you will walk again, and I believed her. She'd be there every day sitting at the hospital holding my hand while I went through some painful procedure. And uh, But she believed in me, and I was able to, you know, to walk again and do the normal things. But there was always Dottie. She was always there to hold my hand, and, and now I miss her, you know. Uh, I s- sit around here some afternoons and uh, uh, this is what we retired to first home we've ever owned you know we didn't own a home in the military we lived on the base and and uh, and now we I wish she could be here today to see what we've done with the property it's beautiful yeah, uh, the f- fruit trees and the fish pond and the palm trees and the banana trees and she would have loved all of this, but God has called her home, and uh, so I guess when uh, I'm at the end of the line now, so they tell me. But that's up to God, and I don't worry about those kind of things anymore. We all think you're going to live to be 150 years old, but I've had 50 years of marriage. A week before she passed away, we decided to renew our vows. Oh, really? And we called a pastor in, and uh, we did it all over again. And she passed away the next week. Yeah, we, uh, by that time, my son had, was gone, and, and, you know, the pastor came in, and then our friends came in and watched us renew our vows. And so, uh, 50 years, we made it from young teenagers who sneaked in another classroom to get a glimpse. But I went to prom together, you know. We were a quincentennial couple. 
and she had this good heart. She would take in some of the younger families and not physically take them in, but they needed money, you know. I was drawing jump pay at that time, and, you know, so she'd always go in her little person, you know, help another family. And uh, she was so kind, had that great heart. And uh, and she was always that way. I mean, but it's what I love so much about her, that she was always willing to take somebody in, and which is one reason in August I'm going to have a uh, family lunch here for the homeless in my backyard. I'm going to bring them over, and I'm going to feed them, and uh, have some of the family members uh, help out, and the city is going to help out. This is what I do now with the Dottie and Gary Capers Foundation. And so we did a barbecue a few weeks ago, donated all the money to uh, the Human Resource Center. And uh, uh, I've done well financially. Every dime from my book goes to charity. You know, so, so I've been lucky you know, after I left the military, I used some of my old basic military skills. And bought a radio station and a construction company and did some business things. Took advantage of this great economy in this country. Made a lot of money, but it doesn't do me any good now. They're all gone now. So I donate monies to wherever I can. Now we're going to concentrate on the homeless. And uh, so that's what I do now. And I still have the memories of kind Dottie and my son who was blind, special needs. He played the piano, piano, the flute, the melodica, the organ. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Amazing child, and uh, he died in my arms of appendicitis. So, uh, you know, I still have those wonderful memories, and but that's my personal life. And but as far as my uh, military life, you know, we were together. Uh, she kept the home fires going. When I was overseas doing what I needed to do, or doing what I thought was right, you know, back in those days, um, you were a patriot. World War II was over and Korea was, they were just digging out a career. And, uh, and so I think that uh, you expected to serve your country, you know. And I did. I mean, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. And uh, there were some days I wished I hadn't. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, just, just to interject for a second. So one thing that really jumped out at me from your early years mm -hmm. was you seemed to become an absolute student of your craft, even at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And when some 
guys were going out and drinking and everything, mm-hmm. you were studying and working yeah. on your tools. Yeah. Where did that come from? And then how did that kind of pay off later in your mm-hmm. career? Well, I was in high school. I was a reader. I was a late bloomer. I didn't go on dates and things like that. You know, I didn't have a car and folks didn't have a lot of money. And uh, I didn't get to, didn't get to go to college until uh, many years later in the Marine Corps. I went to the University of Maryland. And uh, when I was a captain, I went to the University of Chaminade uh, University in Hawaii. But I never got a degree. I got enough you know, stuff. To, I should have gotten something, but I just... They're overrated. I have one. It didn't help that much. <laughs> <laughs> it gave me a lot of debt. <laughs> yeah. But I think that uh, just looking back on it and... And what did you... Oh, I'm sorry. It was about um, you being a student of... Yeah. Of of you know the the craft in the Marines. I used to go to the Enot Pratt Free Library. It was a library that was built for slaves after after the Civil War, and uh, I used to go there in the evening after I got off work, got out of school, and I'd read all all kind of stuff. You know, I was a student of the generals, I guess it was, because they were the ones getting the the press. And uh, I kind of enjoyed, you know, reading about the Romans and, and everybody else who was out there with a program called so- Social Studies back in those days. And you learn uh, so much. My world was open by reading those books. And I finally got to the Greek Acropolis. And when I was a young man, and I think it was 57, I guess it was. Um, uh, so I studied hard before I got into Marine Corps. And then after I joined, of course, boot camp, you learn the basics. But I was a quick study, I guess it was. And I was the, the great young guy that had this high IQ. And I was a high school graduate. You know, we didn't have many high school graduates back in those days. And, uh, so I learned from guys that were Moffat Point Marines. They were the first African-Americans who were allowed to come into the Marine Corps in 1942. Up until that time, uh, blacks could not join the Marine Corps. You could join the Army, Navy. Uh, didn't have much of an Air Force those days. but So uh, they let 20,000 African-Americans joined the Marine Corps in 1942 to 1949, and they fought all over the Pacific, but they didn't really get to uh, fight long enough. Say that famed 1st Marine Division that went in Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima, places like that. So they were mostly uh, support personnel. They were the drivers, the cooks, the bakers, but they were loyal and good Marines. But uh, even when the war was over, uh, a lot of them were not allowed to stay in. They were put out of the Marine Corps. So in 19, I think, 47, I think it was uh, Truman who integrated uh, the services. 
and uh, African-American Marines were allowed to join the regular Marine Force and go to a place called Paris Island uh, to be integrated and Moffat Point, where the basic black Marines were going at that time to 49, uh, that was closed. So uh, I think that uh, it was hard to define why it was that the Marine Corps didn't want African-Americans. Maybe they thought we weren't smart enough for this or that. You know, uh, just like when I joined, you know, after my time in infantry, did three years of infantry, and then uh, I decided I want to, you know, go into. We had something called the Pathfinders and triple threat. You know, we did it all: jumping, swimming, and diving, and all that. And I was a young man, and I joined that organization. Spent three years there, and I got to go to jump school and did all of the the fun things. Uh, but it was hard to get into those organizations because they too didn't want African-Americans in it. You know, so I had to go through all of the, you know, uh, it was a tough program to get into. You had to be okay to pass all of the tests. And of course, I was a young guy, you know, I could run all day long and do all those things. I went to jump school in Fort Benning, Georgia, had 101st airborne there. <coughs> so I did that, excuse me. And then uh, I went to all the other training, uh, jungle warfare and mountain leadership and a lot of misery. Mm-hmm. But once you passed the, the program, <coughs> I was sent to a, the Pathfinder platoon. And they, you know, you jump in ahead of the advanced force and take out the bad guys so the, the good guys could land. So I did that for three years, and that was my first time in uh, reconnaissance. And then I went on to train troops for a while, and uh, then I got into, not the spy business, but I went to work for the National Security Agency, did that for two years. <coughs> then I went to uh, Vietnam. 65, 66, 67, and I spent 68 in the hospital, and I think went back to the Marine Barracks Fort Meade, that's where my family was, and they sent me to Europe to do some more interesting work. We still had uh, the Russians, they were creating all kind of problems, and so I got to do a little bit of that work, working with uh some of the embassies, American embassies. But all that is pretty much well documented by now. But there's so many things that I could tell you, you're going to ask me about some things I can't even remember anymore. I don't want to remember, maybe. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. The The book is very you know, beautifully written. There's so many accounts. There's obviously some that were officially written especially in the medal of honor review um so i don't want to drag you through all these memories oh, either. I don't mind. but um there's a couple obviously i'd like to 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 talk about but before we do that one thing that again popped out a couple of times was martial arts mm. so how did you get into that when in the 
in, bar- in uh, boot camp, they give you a basic martial arts uh, bayonet training and those types of things. And that was the, the basics. Throw each other around and all that. But then a few years later, uh, I got into karate, sabate, kito, and judo. Because I was in pretty good shape, and it was interesting to me. So I found a guy that uh, was an Army guy stationed at Fort Meade. And he'd always come over to the barracks there, and uh, and he helped me with my katas and all kind of stuff there, you know. And I learned quite a bit from him. And I got to the point where I got the third-degree black belt, and then I started my own teaching program. But it was this guy. He was a big guy, and he had this big, huge belly. <laughs> I've seen those kind of instructors yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> but he had good balance. Oh, he could do real good. So I learned from him. And I took it on. And uh, I would teach from the Army Special Services, I'd go and teach every Thursday night uh, to all the guys who want to learn uh, martial arts. And I became a martial arts instructor for the recon guys. And uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I guess in order to be in reconnaissance, you had to have this exceptional PT and be able to do all those things, make night jumps and and warm my body out. Now I'm in my 80s. I have trouble getting up these days. Both my legs were broken. Both my arms were broken. I'm carrying, I think, seven pieces of metal. And uh, I think the 20-some years I spent doing that line of work, we had to take the PFT test every quarter and make so many jumps every quarter and swims and dives. And I made three combat dives in Vietnam. Did a ship bottom search on the USS Boxer. It was almost a thousand feet long. And we went on there looking for uh, explosives and whatever it was. Didn't find anything. And uh, we did so much water work. That's what we were amphibious. And so we did a lot of diving and brought up uh, ammunition and that was stored in rivers and places. Uh, I was a dive master and a jump master and a demo master because I'd been doing this stuff so many years. And a young, I was a staff sergeant then and a young officer that we had, he was not very good. He was physically fit, but he wasn't able to uh, understand the basics of of uh, special operations. And I'd been in 10 years, and I was a martial arts guy, and I was the platoon sergeant. Then when I got commissioned, I kept doing the same thing, you know. I kept doing the martial arts and all that, jump master. We didn't make one parachute jump in Vietnam, though. Mm-hmm. Made a lot in 
other Okinawa, Philippines, different places. But we had a couple jumps scheduled when we were going to get these POWs out of this POW camp. We didn't get them. We, we got there and killed the guards, but they had moved the POWs at that time. So I got my first Purple Heart on that mission. No, uh, that wasn't any fun. And I, you said you saw part of the documentary. No, I haven't seen the documentary yet, actually, because we were waiting for it to come out on Amazon, but I read the book. But with the POW story, what mm -hmm. I thought was interesting is, and I'd love to hear, you know, hear it in a little bit more detail, but you went there at that point, the POWs had been moved, you know, at some point. Um, and so there was always that feeling that you wondered what happened to them. And it really yeah. reminded me of what most firefighters do when they go into a house. Very yeah. rarely do we find a person, right. but yeah. we all take that same risk when we yeah. go in. And so yeah. it was, to me, it was like, well, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to make that rescue. But the fact that you and your men risked their lives to go and facilitate that save, the result was almost... Not, yeah. not irrelevant, but, but you took the same risk whether you made the rescue or whether you didn't. Well, it was uh, 12 of us went in. I had the intel guy, and I had a, a young Vietnamese called Lap, and he had been in the POW camp, knew where it was, so CIA brought him to us, and I, well, I took him with me on the, uh, on the rescue. He led us right to the POW camp, but it was empty. We killed the guards and blew up everything else. Then the problem was getting out of there. You know, that was kind of hard because the chopper couldn't land. And so we had to hoist up. And I was the last man on the ground, and I got hit going up. Wasn't hurt that bad, but it scared the hell out of me because it hit me in the head there. So, you know, we... uh. They gave us all peeled uh, Ron Stars, and uh, they gave the the young officer who led the mission, gave him a Silver Star. He didn't deserve it. But, you know, those are, we did a lot of good missions. I mean, uh, that Rambo movie, you know, ours wasn't as flambat flamboyant as that thing but uh, we were there we got into the firefights and did all of that and uh, my unit ran something like 55 missions and we, we we took it to them I mean there's a lot of things that you probably read a lot of it anyway but it was a hard hard tour for us we only had 40 men and, uh, and then we lost Good bit of those on the way, and we got some new guys in as replacements, and uh, most of those guys are gone now. My team was called Broadminded, Team Broadminded, and there's only three of us left now. Yeah, so uh, we did good, ran some good missions. We spent time up in a place called Quezon, which was a nasty place. And if you have time, I'll have uh, Bill set up the uh, documentary so you can see it's an hour and a half long. 
That'd but, be great. Thank you. Uh, I have to get one of the, someone who can show it to you because I don't know how to do this stuff anymore. You know, computers and all that. And, uh, well, I think these days as well, I think you can even, there's a code so you can watch it anywhere and you just punch it in. But um, I have to see, you know, what, what kind of copy they've got. But no, I mean, because I've been waiting for it to come out for everyone listening. It should be coming out soon on Amazon, I believe. Yeah, we've been working on this thing now. But unfortunately, uh, run into a problem with the music. We didn't own the music. Uh, the copyright problem. Yeah, so we're working on that now. <clears throat> Matter of fact, I'll call Hollywood uh, later on today. And see, and I'm going to meet with them next week when I go out to L.A. or San Diego. They, uh, it's a good documentary. Uh, my old platoon sergeant, he lives about 20 minutes from here. Oh, sergeant, really? Yeah, Sergeant Yerman. He was started off as a young Lance Corporal and a uh, good man. He's got some serious issues. PTSD. Uh, he lived as a hermit for 15 years after the war. And a lot of the guys, such as me, that's that air freshener. Yeah, I know. It's area. funny. It sounds like a cat getting yeah. throttled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, we ran a lot of good missions, and uh, I remember some of it and some of it. You know, I think that year in the hospital, though. Uh, they try to get me to forget some of this stuff there. But lately, I'm doing much better. I take medication. I take medication for PTSD, for grieving, for pain, for sleeping. Just a lot of stuff they give me because uh, the pain I go through, uh, you know, uh, I'm dealing with it. I don't know that the medication helps me that much, but uh, at least I can sleep a little bit better. Uh, yeah, a lot of the things that you would probably want to ask, I have to think about it and see whether I even know the answer to it anymore. <laughs> well, one, one thing I did want to talk about, because I think that um, it's very rare, rare that we hear mental health discussed especially in you know the vietnam generation it's funny you've got carl melanta's book on the on your side there i've got mm -hmm. the same one um speaking of that but um when i was reading it seemed like the first time that you really felt the weight of that was when you lost um uh corporal michael scantlin yeah so if, if you're okay, kind of recounting that, tell sure. me about, you know, the, his heroism, another Medal of Honor worthy moment. And then, mm -hmm. you know, why that one particular one was kind of like that, that crit critical mass for you. Well, he was a, a, like a son to me. He was a young guy from Boston, Springfield, Mass. Uh, after I came home, I went to see his mother, told her how sorry I was. You know, I, I thought for sure I'd, get him home and work that way uh, and there were there's some thought that one of the grenades that came in I wasn't with him on that mission but he apparently had pulled it under him 
because when they looked at his body, he had great restoration. His sternum was crushed. So I flew down to uh, Da Nang. I was in Quezon at the time. He was our first casualty up at Quezon. Uh, red-headed kid, freckled face, smile all the time. And he's like a son to me. And when I got the word that he was was killed, uh, it hurt. Uh, and I went to the Nang to the hospital because one of the other men, Sergeant Ernst, he's gone too. Uh, I went to see him to see if he could tell me what the hell happened out there. Uh, I was on the POW mission. That was a hard one for me, I think, because when I when I went in, uh, it was raining outside. I caught the chopper from Quezon down to Da Nang, which was only about 30 miles, I think. And uh, I got a Jeep, and I went walking in the hospital. As I was walking down the uh the aisle, I heard this baby crying, little girl crying, and I stopped, and uh, I couldn't believe it. She was blind and was tied, tethered to her the bed there, and uh, I think she had one leg and one arm. It was so sad, and she was crying, and I. I stopped, and I went over. You know, I mean, you, I've heard babies crying in war zones, but I picked her up, and she tried to hold on to me. And uh, I knew I had to go down to see Sergeant Urine, Sergeant Ernst, because I needed to get back to Quezon, because they would be coming in. That 324B Division was hitting us pretty hard, and... 120 rockets. So I picked the child up and I rocked her and, and she stopped crying. And I looked at my watch and I says, Oh man, I gotta get out of here. And I couldn't put her down. She wouldn't let me, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, turn me loose. And, uh, but at any rate, I laid the child down. I went down to the, uh, where Ernst was. And he had that big old city grin on his face. And I was a little tentative at that that time. And uh, this was January. Yeah, January. And uh, I was standing talking to Ernst. He had been hit both arms. I think he was trying to throw a grenade, and the thing was a dud, and he got shot in one arm, and he eventually got hit in both arms, as he was accounting the story, and they, we were going to send him home, but when I was talking to him, I heard this uh, Marine crying, give me water, I need some water, somebody help me please, and I turned around, and I said, Ernest, what's going on? He says, uh, Lieutenant, he's dying. And they can't give him any water. And well, if he's dying, why, 
Now, he was crying, and uh, I went over to the corner, and I said, Doc, what? can't you do something for this kid? He said, no, sir, I can't do anything. He's dying. He had a big old s stomach wound, and uh, a mess. And you could smell it all over the place there. I said, Doc, uh, you know, you got to do something. You can't let this kid. And he said, he said something. I didn't like it, and I probably said something else to him. And next thing I know, Ernst was saying, Tenant, let him go, let him go. And I guess I, by that time, I had seen so much death and destruction that it just broke my heart. The little girl up there and uh, Ernst here and the rain dying uh, and uh, couldn't give him any water. So a nurse came over and said, uh, Lieutenant, uh, can I talk to you? I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, you know, uh, why, don't you, why don't you come with me for a minute? I said, okay. And Yerman, uh, Yerman uh, is the one still alive. Ernst is gone now. And Ernst said, Lieutenant, uh, behave yourself. I said, all right. So she took me back in the office there, had soft music playing. And she said, uh, Lieutenant, sit down for a minute. She said, who the hell are you? I said, I'm Lieutenant Jim Capers. I come from Quezon, look after one of my Marines. So, Sergeant Yerman, I said, Yerman, but uh, Ernst, Ernst is buried up in Arlington. And uh, she said, you look pretty bad. What's not, what's not? When's the last time you you ate? I said, nurse, I don't remember. So, uh, and uh, she said, you know, the doctor's not going to let you out of here. You know, you, I got wounded down in uh, Fula, Fuba, I guess it was. She said, why don't you stay here? We'll send a message to your command because you need to be hospitalized. And she said, how long been here? I said, I joined the unit in November 1965. She said, Lieutenant, this is February 1967. I said, yeah, but I've been a staff sergeant and I, I'm filling in for some of the officers till we get some supplies, get some replacements in. She says, I think you're done. I think you need to see the doctor and, and have him do something with you because, you know, you you obviously got blood all over you, you got mud all over you, and uh, don't look even if eating anything. I said, well, I'll eat when my troops are eating. And um, they said, well, let me give you something now. I said, no, no, I won't eat now. And, uh, you, feed, you feed Sergeant Ernst, but I can't eat now. I got to get back to Quezon because we're going to be expecting a, an attack tonight. So how do you know that? Because that's what they always do. You know, so I've got to get back. She said, well, you need to eat something. I said, no, I can't eat till my troops eat. That's just something, you know, officers never eat until they've been eating. How am I going to sit down there with music playing and 
and and a plate of food. No, you know, can't do that. That's not where it goes and the way I was taught, you know, coming up in the line of work I was in. So the doctor came in and he said that I heard that you were here and I want to come in and, and tell you that uh, it's no shame in us keeping you here. Uh, we, we think that you had, you got combat fatigue and, and we want to keep you here. And uh, I said, Doc, uh, I can't stay. He said, well, we also know you got a, got a wife and a son back home. And uh, so I was supposed to go home in uh, in April, and this was February. I said, Doc, uh, you know, let me talk to my my sergeant, and and I gotta get out of here. He said, You know, I could have the MPs keep you. I said, Doc, you and I both know you don't have enough men in here to keep me. <laughs> he said, No, nah, don't. Let's don't get carried away with this thing now. So I uh, I got up. Actually, he left. He said, I got to go see another patient. I want to say, go take care of that boy who's dying out there. And uh, he said, why don't you sit here and I can smell the nurse's perfume. And I hadn't smelled perfume and I don't know when. And uh, she had that pretty white smock on, pretty girl, young. I thought too young to be in a war zone like this, but a lot of young ladies, they volunteered. I mean, they were really heroes. You know, they were just so, so brave when the hospital got hit. They grabbed those M16s, they go out there and they'd get their helmets and jump on the lines. Amazing young women who did those kind of things. I admired them so much, even the nurses. And she sat down there with me. She said, uh, Lieutenant, take your boots off. Take your boots off, you know, and uh, relax for a minute. And I said, I'll sit down for a minute, but I I need to get back to Quezon. Uh She said, you know, if you go back to Quezon, you're probably going to die. I said, nurse, been a story of my life, <laughs> a story of my life. And she said, why don't you sit down for a minute? I sat down for a minute and I felt, I dozed off. I was just tired. Body was worn out. I weighed 125 pounds when I come home. I weighed 206 pounds now. Most of that's fat right now, man. But uh, I said, no, I need to get back. So I went out and I said hello to uh, or goodbye to Sergeant Ernst. And uh, he died of brain cancer from Agent, Agent Orange. And uh, I was going back up to get my Jeep. And I heard the little girl cry. My mind was fried. I can't do this anymore. Just couldn't do it. I couldn't. I wanted to go over and grab her and hug her. My heart was broken. 
I didn't know whether Ernst was going to live or die. Whether the Marine over there with the bad stomach wounds. Now I've got this child I could hear. I could hear her, but uh, I couldn't do it anymore. So the nurse come behind me and she said, Lieutenant, uh, your Jeep is out there. And uh, it was raining and the Jeep pulled up and she had this beautiful white smock on and she come out it to the Jeep where I was and grabbed me by the arm. She said, Lieutenant, don't go to Quezon. You won't make it out of there. You need to be in the hospital. I said, nurse, I appreciate it, but I, I told you, my men are up there. As long as they're up there, I'll be there. If I got to die, I die with the only friends I ever had. And she was saying something to me, and she tripped and stumbled in the mud. And damn it, she said, Lieutenant, come on with me. And I got the Jeep and didn't say goodbye. Walked, you know, Jeep drove off. I got me a helicopter and uh, drove back to Quezon. And that night, they came. You can hear the whistles blowing and uh, hop up on opi op opium and morphine and hear the whistles blowing. And they'd come through the lines. They had something called sappers. Sappers. They'd blow themselves up and blow a hole in the barbed wire, and they'd come running in. Mm, almost like suicide bombers. But those wonderful young troops there, they picked up entrenching tools. I wasn't able to do anything that night. You know, uh, but they, you could hear them yell, the young, Come on. And then we had this setup uh, run by a lady named Hanoi Hannah. And she would be broadcasting these Yankee, it's almost like the old Japanese thing there. Uh, Yankee, go home. You die. And they'd be broadcast over there. And, um, but they came. Blowing those bugles, and they didn't take case on. But you know when I when I think of uh, those nights, uh, I needed to rest. I was tired. I mentally, I, plus I had never healed from that POW thing. When I got hit, and uh, I called my uh, my corpsman. I was lieutenant at that time, back in Quezon, and I uh, called my corpsman. I said, "Doc, come with me now. Come with me, cause I'm gonna need you." Doc says, "You okay, lieutenant?" I said, "Yeah, doc, I'm okay, but..." This might be a hard one for us. So, and he followed me around a little berm. And that's when uh, 
the flares were coming down and everything was going on there. I said, Doc, stay with me now because that they'll be coming soon. It was dark and you see the flares, flares dropping down. And uh, the corpsman said, uh, Lieutenant, uh, he said, uh, you know, I don't feel well. I'm just a little tired. Can I, uh, can I rest for a moment? I said, yeah, Doc, we got a little time. And he sat down next to me. My right foot. He leaned against my right foot and he died right there. He never got up. Had a hole in his chest. And I never knew the boy was, uh, had been hit. He followed me. He said, I'm, I'm just a little tired. Let me rest for a minute. He didn't complain. He died in his post. And so, uh, I think that's when the demons come home. I didn't even know his name. When I looked at him, he had a big hole in his chest. I never, never said a word. I said, let me rest for a minute. And, uh, you know, I think when I go back into those days, those dark days, you know, you wonder who was this boy? Where did he come from? How did he know that he was supposed to stay on his post? You know, where did he come from? Where do we get these young men from? Uh, I never knew him before. I don't remember. I knew he was a corpsman, so I must have known him from somewhere, but I was gone for a little while, and the boy died right there. So it's at night, things are going on, people are yelling and screaming, and and uh, I thought I thought maybe uh, I lost it just for a little bit. I uh, put down my rifle and I looked up in the sky and I said, God, uh, I need you tonight. I need you. I need you to help me. I said, hit me with a bolt of lightning, do something, but. And God didn't answer, didn't say anything, nothing I could recognize, no bolt of lightning. So I, I wonder if God was listening. It was so much chaos. And, uh, but I got up, picked up my rifle, and I went back to the war. And they pulled us out and sent me back to Fubai. And I wanted so badly to hear God say, it's going to be okay. But I didn't hear anything, nothing I could recognize. So eventually we got out of there and moved on back down south. And it started all over again.
Armani. Uh, I've been hit twice at Quezon, but I already had one Purple Heart from uh, the POW thing. If you had three Purple Hearts, they would send you home. And I never said nothing to anybody. He didn't want to leave you, man. No, couldn't do that. O'Donnell was gone. Spainau was gone. Kennison was gone. Barnes was gone. And I'm a staff sergeant. I'm running this thing now. Staff sergeant. They turned me down in 1964. In 1965, I applied for officer's training. They said, it but not select it. But then again, that day in 66, my colonel called me in and put some lieutenant bars on me. No officer's training. I went there a few weeks ago, Quantico, finally let me see it. <laughs> this is what you missed. <laughs> but we lost so many men at that case on the 324th B Division hit us hard. They, they could fight. They'd been there since then being fool when they fought against the French. But they never took Quezon from us. No, they never took it. They'd come pretty close because some of that Westmoreland came in at one time. He flew in and looked around and left. And he was a the commander-in-chief of it at that time. But uh, we got out of there and flew south, and then it got worse. So, but in between, we went on special missions, and, and uh, I can't remember all of the missions, but if you can tie all this together. Uh, no, I mean, it, it flows the way it's supposed to. But one, one thing I wanted to ask you, and I always ask, Every member of the military, this that's, that's been deployed, that's seen combat, because there is no worse example of how um, abandoned our men and women of the military were than the Vietnam era. Yeah. Um, and even to this day, I think that the civilians of the world, well, at least in the US and, and maybe the UK, um, get given a very polarizing view like these days now there's a kind of you could think of it as a pro-war view you know like kill them all let god sort them out and then you have the the baby killer you know side so what i always ask people so that people listening can get a view of what it's like to be a member of the military wearing a uniform standing in that combat zone when you got there let's say vietnam specifically um regardless of politics that sent you there because you know often there's people on the show that mm -hmm. were in a war that they didn't agree with um what were some of the things you started seeing done by the vc and the um mva to the vietnamese people that made you realize regardless of politics there are some there are some horrible people that we need to take care of well i think earlier on you know, we knew that uh, they were the North Vietnamese because we came in on the side of the South Vietnamese. 
because uh, they divided uh, the North and South at the end of the Den Bien Vu thing. And uh, the North, uh, Ho Chi Minh, I think he's running that. Mm-hmm. Forget the president of South Vietnam, but we were on the side of the South Vietnamese. We came in, Army came in with big divisions, and my unit, we were in 40 men, all trained, top of the line, you know, team broad-minded. Uh, we had a 12-man uh, group, but we we had other trained commandos also. Uh, but Team Broadminded, which was my team, were very good. Dangerous, I would think. All young men trained by the sergeant here and led by the lieutenant. But the Vietnamese... We had something called a National Liberation Front, and these were some of the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong would go into some of the villages where and rape the women, recruit the young men, take all of the rice. And if they had a chief, they would take the chief and hang him up, rip his stomach out, let the hogs eat his entrails. And they'd burn what was left. And then my job was to go and find them. Hunt them. And I did. We hunted them down. And we killed one of them. If we didn't, they'd come back again. So we hunt them down to their villages and to their hideouts in the mountains. They drop us in by helicopters. We spend five or six days out there and uh, find out their cooking pots and uh, we track them down at night. We had artillery, a wonderful battery called Yankee Battery and they were one uh, 105s and they could move pretty much close to us. Then we had the 175s, 155s. Then we had the 175s at Quezon, but the artillery were guys that would back us up because we didn't have enough men to fight them toe-to-toe. So and then we had the gunships that we gave them the coordinates, and uh, they were scared of us. They needed to be. And we had what we call free fire zones. And uh, anything in that zone there, I could hunt down and kill. Uh, killing and I hear these noises here. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the zone and all of a sudden yeah, the air freshener goes off again. Yeah. <laughs> I don't plan that stuff, but that's where it is. <laughs> but we were good at that and uh, we hung down. We sometimes we enough to get a prisoner, and uh, and sometimes uh, we didn't bring them back for a lot of reasons. 
but it was so violent. It was so violent. Uh, uh, I was a little older <coughs> at the time. I was a little older. And a lot of the guys were, you know, they were barely out of their teens, but they were young and strong, and they volunteered, and I needed them. When I was up at uh, Arlington a few weeks ago, my point man was there, Sergeant Doroski, point man, instinct person. Lord knows instinct person. And the one mission that he didn't go on was the one that we, uh, Battle of Fulak, and I lost my war dog, and all of us got pretty much banged up. But we accomplished the mission. We were going to need to blow the, the leeward side of the mountain range, and uh, we called in phantoms and artillery, because that's where they were, they were, Basin the Hitway City. We uh, we didn't we didn't stop them going in the Way City, but we slowed them down a lot. I had ten men in my war dog King who'd been with me, you know, for a long time. He was killed right in front of me. Probably saved my life. But we brought his body out, and you know, I tried to talk about that as best I could. But so many missions we ran. It's hard to remember them all or certain degree of accuracy. But you were asking me about the cruelness of the enemy soldiers and why it was so important for us to make sure they knew if they come into this area, we're going to find them. Because you, you? you had Green Berets protecting areas too, didn't you? So I think that's an important thing is that in these in these combat zones, mm -hmm. people forget that American, British, Australian, wherever, you mm -hmm. know, the, the allied forces are protecting the native people of that right. country, whether it's Iraqis, whether it's Afghanis. Right. And, you know, I think the again, the the distortion of what these you know often drafted men and women were asked to do yeah. in Vietnam the the worst case scenarios are reported, you know, the, the the massacres that did happen at the hands of the Americans, which were an anomaly versus all the good that you guys were doing amidst this this battle zone. So it's so important that we civilians, myself included, get to hear these first hand accounts of of where, you know, Americans were dying protecting yeah. South Vietnamese. We had Australians there. Uh we had the uh, two divisions from South Korea. We had the Korean White Horse Division and the Korean First Division, First Marine Division. And uh, they were good fighters. And I didn't fight with them, but I was Australians. And they had some British there. I don't remember running into too many of them there. Uh, but... Always our best allies. <laughs> I mean, and you know, I worked with them, you know, in my earlier years when I was on the med cruises and we would, uh, see the British in the Middle East with the, uh, French Foreign Legion. Uh, 
in places like Italy. The Legion was there and the British was there. It was the NATO forces. And as a young guy, you know, I saw all this happening and I was soaking it all up. But I found out that the British and the Legion, they were older guys. My guys were 19, 20 years old. <laughs> Some of these guys, you know, been in World War II, you know. Uh, uh, I never really saw too many of, of the Foreign Legion in a combat environment. And I don't remember seeing it in Vietnam because they had their shot at it and when they lost Dien Bien Phu. Mm-hmm, with the French. Yeah. But uh, the British, they had to be there. I don't remember a war we ever fought the British. Well, it might have been the SAS. They were probably hiding in all the shadows. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know that, you know, one of the the reasons behind the documentary, one of the, well, the, the reason that I came across your story in the first place, and it's, you know, one of so many that people should be hearing, was the Medal of Honor component. Mm-hmm. How, you know, I mean... When people read your book, mm-hmm. there are so many acts of valor in those stories with you and your men. It's incredible. But so let's kind of transition to that point now. Tell me about April third, nineteen sixty-seven, mm-hmm. and then I think the that that part is important, but also the the events following and finding yourself back in American soil and not receiving the hero's welcome that our World War Two vets did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, coming out of uh, Quezon, uh, we went into a place called Fulak. I'm oh, sorry, Fubai. Then we launched a mission into Fulak, you know, to hopefully uh, stop them from going into Way City, because that was already planned. There wasn't no big surprise to anybody. But uh, the South Vietnamese, they fought relatively good. But uh, I got nominated for the Medal of Honor in 2006, years after the war, because uh, I got nominated by both my battalion commanders for the Medal of Honor. They gave me the Silver Star, and the Navy gave me the Commando Medal of Honor. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of stuff around here. If you see over there, the governor gave me awards and and uh, the North and South Carolina governors, recent years, they gave me these uh, governor's awards. Mm, sir. And uh, they did the documentary and I wrote the book, but I never got the Medal of Honor. Uh, there are some who didn't think I did enough uh, in our line of work. We didn't stand up and fight against tanks and whatever. We would drop behind enemy lines and do what we were trained to do. Uh, we had to slow them down a little bit. And we fought pretty good battles up at Quezon and Fubai, Fulak. And uh, we made four famous landings up near the DMZ. Uh, we fought against the... Uh, fought against the the divisions up near the DMZ. And that was a, we had uh, 1st Battalion, 26 Marines, and I was attached to it. 
provide reconnaissance for those guys. And we lost 37 men killed, over 200 wounded. I only had a couple wounded. I didn't have any KIAs on that one. But violent up near the, up near the DMZ. Uh, my team rep rescued a bunch of Marines that had been, uh, been surrounded, and they brought us in by chopper, and I flanked them, the enemy soldiers, and got as many as I could. Uh, then we brought them out. We, we were operating from ships, meaning four, four amphibious landings from ships and Amtraks. We'd go in and do what we needed to do against the enemy. Now we had the Australians and the 173rd Airborne Battle Group. Australians came in from the west and the Airborne came in. They were anchors. We came in from the sea and the Australians over here and the army was coming in. We're putting an anvil right there. Unfortunately, we came in the army had a little bit of a gap. They got they jumped off a little bit late, so we didn't kill as many as we would have if they'd had that anvil there. Because the uh, Australians they they did good, yeah, they did good. But um, we killed nine hundred and ninety some, uh, nine hundred and ninety some, I think. On two missions, went back and killed another 200 and some, but that was the battalion wasn't just us recon guys. We led them to where we thought the bad guys were. Rescued a few guys and um, uh, did best we could. But on to the Medal of Honor, right now, uh, my uh, senators have recommended that. I'd be awarded the Medal of Honor. Uh, Marine Corps is kind of hard on awards. They turned me down. Said, no, you didn't do enough. Uh, but back in those days, we've never had any history of the whole Marine Corps dating back to 1775. Uh, and because we didn't have black officers back in those days, Marines. We've never had a black officer receive the Medal of Honor or be nominated in the history of the Marine Corps. I'm, I'm the first one ever to be nominated. I got nominated, didn't get it. They drop it down to the Silver Star, and they give me some other stuff, but I never got the Medal of Honor. Now, Congress is picking it up now, and I met with uh, some of the senators, congressmen, who said, hey, this is BS. This guy should have got the Medal of Honor. Considering what we did and all of the missions we ran. Yeah, for which time? <laughs> yeah. But they will only give you the Medal of Honor for uh, one mission. And I ran I know, 50, 60 missions over there and diving missions and sp special ops missions, the POW missions and it was my team that found that aircraft, B-57, Canberra, and it was crashed in the mountains, and we located it. 
and he was outfitted to carry a nuclear weapon. But then they left us out there. We had to walk home. Yeah, so, walk home is not <laughs> like yeah. half a mile down the road. Yeah. You were there for what, five days or something? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you read the book. Yes, sir. Like yeah, I said, it's a great read. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's not the book that I wanted to write, but I had to hire a ghostwriter. I paid him ten grand to help me with the spelling and all of that. And uh, a lot of the, the things that I, I wrote didn't make it. Didn't make the cut. Oh, really? Yeah. He said, people won't read any more than 300 pages. So you cut a lot of stuff out. That was pretty good stuff. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can re like release a second portion of all the bits that were kept out. Um, I'm thinking about that. An addendum. Yeah. And we, group of young men, I'm telling you, they were really good, hard guys. And of course, at that time, you know, I'd been handpicked to, to do whatever it was we we did. And uh, I think when I got hit the last time, they, they sent me to Da Nang, then they shipped us off to uh, Japan. And from Japan, they sent us to Alaska. It was 10 degrees below zero, and snow all over the ground, snow was falling, and they took us off the aircraft and refueled it to go to Virginia. And you were, you had shrapnel in your abdomen, your leg was broken, mm. so you were in a bad way. Bad way. Bleeding out. Yeah. That was a tough, uh, took us five days to get home. Yeah, they, uh, I think the sadness of it when I was in uh, Japan, uh, Air Force Base there, there was a young Marine. I mean, I was the only officer that was going to Alaska. And uh, the young Marine who was uh, in the wreck next to me, he lost his right leg and uh, lost his right leg. And... Uh, he was a lieutenant. I said, yeah, what do you got? He said, you want to have my milk? I'm not going to drink my milk. We didn't get much milk in the country, you know, them things there. But I said, no, 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 you need your strength. He said, you know, I'm going to marry a girl named Mary Lou. And uh, she's waiting for me. Said, but I don't know now. Uh, he said, you think she's still going to love me now I lost my leg? I said, don't worry about it. She's going, as long as you're home, she can't wait to have you home. And don't worry about it. Merle is going to be there. I never knew if Merle was there or not because the boy died. They didn't make it. Didn't make it. So that's the kind of sadness. You know, the, you wonder... Why didn't he make it? Why did I got? Why did I get home? You know, I had a wife and a son waiting for me, but the boy didn't make it, and uh, we lost four on the way home. 
and I think, you know, when I got off the aircraft, son of a bitch, pardon my language there. Oh, please. Uh, he pissed on me. So, because uh, I heard you talk about that in the other, so so you were basically on a stretcher on mm-hmm. on the airport ground, mm-hmm. on the, in the uh, the tarmac. Who who the hell was that? The good question. <laughs> so so you're lying there near mortally wounded, and someone peed on you. It's cruelty. You know, we didn't get the bands. Nobody reached down to say, "Hey, welcome home." Thanks for doing a good job. Can I help you? Can I give you a drink of water or whatever? No. Didn't get that. Nobody said hello. People walk by. You're bleeding on the sidewalk. And on the way to the hospital, they put me in an ambulance. I had all this urine on me. And that was my welcome home. It wasn't... You know, it hurt, but then I figured, you know, I'll remember this guy. In my mind, God, please let me remember this person. But God doesn't work that way. No. No, you've had enough. No more. So, uh, uh, went on to the hospital and, uh, they called my, oh, they sent a, uh, they used to have telegrams. They sent telegrams if somebody was wounded or killed or whatever. Or they would try to send uh, an officer out to, like, they sent an officer out to my wife's apartment where she lived in Baltimore. And uh, she didn't want to open the door because she didn't want to, she saw the car, she looked out the window. Because she had this feeling all day long. And she called her mother and said, Mom, I think something's wrong. You know, I got this feeling. And then she saw the car pull up out there. She said, oh, boy, he's gone. And then the uh, two officers come up to the door, knock on the door. And they try to they try to tell her that I was okay. And she was hearing I was dead, and she wouldn't open the door for him. So uh, they finally convinced him, he's alive, he's alive. And then uh, then she was able to come to the hospital, but she couldn't find me because they told her they didn't have any black Marine officers. I was a little commission over there. They gave me new dog tags, new ID card. And they uh, changed my Social Security number. Uh you know, uh, I went over the staff sergeant and come back as a lieutenant with all new stuff. Staff sergeant capers didn't didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. You're the ultimate spy, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we got home, and uh, she'd come to see me. But uh, I'm not sure, so sure how I felt. I felt ashamed. Because I wrote to her, you know, all those letters. And, you know, uh, when I get home, you know, we're going to go to lunch, dinner. We're going to go dancing. We're going to go to dinner. I left in 65. Now, this is April 67. And uh, 
And uh, all that time had gone by. Uh, she brought the baby with her. He remembers that. Uh, but when she brought him there, he, he would hold her hand. But some kind of way, he got away from her and come into my room and put his hand on my on my bed and says, Hi, Daddy. And the question was, how did he know what room I was in? Yeah, because you said he was blind. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and there's, there's so many moments in your stories as well where there's that kind of divine intervention yeah. moment. And that obviously was one of them. Well, the one I was telling you when I was at Quezon and I'm pleading for God to help me out here. And I ain't seen no bolt of lightning. God didn't say anything to me. But on the way home in the Battle of Fulak, we got hit real bad and um, chopper landed. I got my all my troops on there and best we could and uh, got my dog's body on. Then we couldn't get off the ground. It was one of them little small H-34s. And, but everybody got on board, bleeding, and guys were, oh, it was kind of a mess. And I was in pretty bad shape. And uh, uh, when the choppers took off, it, I didn't think it was going to make it. It took off and it started. The second or third time it started going down, then all of a sudden, like the hand of God reached up and took it up and sent it home toward the hospital. And years later, when I thought about what happened at Quezon, when I was pleading for God to help me, that's when God said, you know, I heard you. I wasn't asleep. I heard you the first time. I heard you the first time. Mm -hmm. I am God. I can fly this helicopter. I don't need any gas. I don't need a pilot. I'll get you home. And the next time it crashed, it crashed in the hospital yard. I could see the, the Red Cross there, and it crashed there, and it got all my guys off. Everybody survived uh, except the dog, and, and, uh, we're still fighting that same old battle. Now, what was really powerful to me about that moment is you try to take off the first two times and mm -hmm. the weight was too much. You were hanging on to the, the landing mm -hmm. gear and not one moment was there the thought to remove the dog because you saw the dog as another Marine. I mean, for me, I've actually have a German Shepherd myself as well, mm -hmm. but I thought that was very powerful, yeah. you know, and, and the way that, you know, the the when you landed that you know the dog will still continue after you made sure mm. continue to to be treated as a marine so i think that was you know a very very powerful part but that third time like you said that that thrust was found through you know divine intervention and the and the craft got you guys back through the years when my son was dying and i was holding on to him And he stopped breathing, and I got on my knees again. 
I said, God, you know, here I am again. But he died in my arms. And demons come home. I got angry again. And, uh, and, uh, God works in mysterious ways. But I always worried about my son being blind and special needs. What would happen to him when mom and dad is gone? Would he ever be cold? Would he be hungry? Would he be abused? Who would care for him? We wanted those things. We discussed it. But then God said, I heard you. He's with God now, and he's with his mother. He'll never be cold. He'll never be hungry. He'll never be abused because he's in heaven with God. God has assured me that. And I believe I'll see them again. But it's God never does things when you want them done. But he answered my prayer. Answered my prayer. So he's no longer blind. No longer blind now. Mm-hmm. So I have to take these things with me. I wish I had him here because God has gave me a gift because he was gifted. He was gifted. And he was such a wonderful, wonderful child. And he was so much part of my life in the days when I thought that I would make it. He gave me an inspiration. I'm going home to give him sight. He will be able to hold on to me. But if I fail now, who will carry my child? I was holding him when he closed his eyes. When it was hard on me. The demons come by again. And it seemed like the next day, Dottie passed away of, of, of liver cancer. So then, but now, on the positive side, she doesn't have cancer anymore. She didn't have cancer anymore. She's healed. God has healed her. These are things that I've had to hold on to. And I believe today, and I believe that I will see them again. Definitely. I know that for me, the clock is ticking. I know that. Uh, and I've fought some good battles. Depends on which side of the coin you're on. I always like to think I did what was right for my country, even though places I went to, there were signs up, no Negroes allowed. Even in Hawaii, you experienced prejudice, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, that's the way our country has evolved. You know, we're getting better. It's sad that we have so many young people killing or being killed on both sides. But, uh, you know, I wonder sometimes when I start to write the book, my 
wife and I start to write it together. Then when I got to California, I was in a hotel and I finally got an apartment. And uh, it's kind of hard because everything I ever wanted and cared about was gone now. This house didn't didn't exist anymore, only in my mind. And I went from hotel to hotels, and then I would try to call my wife. I'd take my cell phone out, and I'd try to call her and tell her I'm in L.A. now. But she wasn't able to hear those calls. She was in Arlington, but in my mind... I was in denial. I want to tell her I'm okay. Okay. But I told her a couple weeks ago when I was up in Arlington, I told her I'll see you soon. We'll be all right. God has promised us that. She was a very deeply religious woman. And uh, she told me before she closed her eyes, I'll see you again. But this time she didn't wink at me. She will when you get up there. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully I'll make it because the life I live, you know, uh, I did what I thought was right. Killed a lot of people, a lot of people uh, along the way. I'm not sure I'm proud of that. I'm not sure if I'm proud of that, but uh, at the time, it didn't make much difference to me. I was trained, and I got good at my craft. I was very good at it. Yeah, if they run up on Team Broadminded, they had a hard time. Mm-hmm. We'd go out and wasn't unusual for us to kill 20, 30, 40. And we would do that with small arms. I would usually open up. And then uh, my M79 man would open up. My M60 would open up. And then we would smoke the smoke the area, and in a matter of minutes, there'd be smoke and death all over the place. And I don't know how you're proud of that, but they didn't harm any innocent farmers. Then we back off, then call in artillery, burn the whole area. Then the, the choppers would come in and. You know, it was just, and then we would get on the, on the chopper to go back to our base, and nobody would speak. We were just staring, and you could, as the chopper turned around, you could see nothing but a burn, burn drop zone, fire all over the place. Because Team Broadminder had been there. And if you're not careful, we're coming back again. And again and again. 
until they feared us. They feared us. And then some of my guys, unfortunately, uh, I worried about them because that's what they wanted to do. They want to kill people. I had to say, okay, it's not what we're here for. We kill when it's necessary. And you saw that slowly grow from yeah. that, what was an innocent, you know, blank canvas mind, new marine to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, again, I mean, we, we hear some of these, you know, these stories where that's gone too far. Yeah. And it wasn't like, you know, you arrived in, in that place with that mindset. And I think that's what we've got to remember as well, especially in drafts, you know, that we picked these kids from this one country and we dropped it in this other one, children. Yeah. And we told them to go kill. And then, you know, what's disgusting is then when they come back, they're pissed on and spit on and call baby killers and all yeah. this. And then we wonder why that generation now is taking their lives at a you know astounding rate yeah. because we we abandoned them. Yeah, we forced them to go out there. We forced them to kill, and then when they came back, we we left them out to dry. So I, I mean, it's it's an absolute embarrassment. I think what we did to that generation. Yeah, the other day uh, I got a. There was Tuesday. I got a call from a, a very successful businessman, and he asked me if I'd come to this very prestigious golf course. And he said they want to hear my stories of Vietnam. And these are folks who got plenty of money, and they go play golf. And they read about me somewhere along the line. And they contacted me and uh, said, say, would you come and tell us what it was like? At first I said, no, uh, I don't know if I want to go down this road again, you know. It's taken enough for me to go to San Diego next week and talk to the Gold Star Widows. But I said, yeah, I'll come. And these guys never wore the uniform, very successful, but they want to hear how I suffered and my generation suffered. You know, uh, nobody gave me anything when I come home. You know, I mean, it, you know, it was kind of hard, but when I look at the totality of kindness, when I got home from Alaska to Virginia to the hospital, before my wife come in, and I was a mess. I'd been in five days getting home. I'd been four days in combat. You know, I was uh, bloody and dirty. And uh, this young nurse came in. And I was, you know, my wounds was open and draining. And I was in serious pain. And she sat down next to me, and uh, she left the room for a minute and to come back with a pail of water, scented water. And she took my hands and rubbed my hands in this water, and the dirt and blood came off my hands. And she massaged my hands. And that's the first time I had a human touch in I don't know how long. And... Uh, 
She said, Lieutenant, they tell me your wife is coming tomorrow. She's coming tomorrow. And, uh, you know, but the little touch, little touch of kindness that I'd had flesh and whatever all over me, hadn't shaved and hadn't bathed, you know, but there she was sitting there. I must have smelled awful. You know, she sat there with that pretty little white outfit on, washing my hands and couldn't get the blood off my hands. Flesh under my fingernails. My eyes were sunken back in my head. I must have looked terrible. But she rubbed my hands and says, your wife is coming tomorrow. She's coming tomorrow. And uh, those little things, they help in the healing process. So you begin to, to heal by somebody doing something, some little kindness to you. And you, you take that with you. You don't remember the person who pissed on me. Uh, but it's those kind things of kindness. Or a blind child finds his way into a, a hospital room and says, Hello, Daddy. How's it happen? The doctor said he didn't know either. He felt he must have felt it. He couldn't have known I was in that room. But, you know, there are things that we don't quite understand yet. But I knew it was my son. I felt it. He didn't cry. He didn't cry. I was a mess. And those long nights... All these wounds were were draining and the pain I was going through. And sometimes I would take my clock. They would give me a shot of morphine every four hours. I had a clock over my, my bed. I had turned my clock up. And I called my nurse and nurse, you forgot to give me my medicine. You know, well, come look at my clock there. I was a junkie. I was so used to that morphine. That's what kept me alive, that morphine. I just wanted to say, come give me my morphine. Look at this clock. You forgot. She didn't forget. Just that that's what I wanted. I can know how a, a, a drug addict feels. And all those long nights, I laid there in that bed, hearing those uh, cries and, you know, uh, and trying to get through the night, uh, the dreams I had and the things that occurred to me in that time there that you don't know what's real or, uh, or what's imagination. You're trying to put it out of your mind, but you can't. You can't. And so many things occurred in that hospital when I had the near-death experience when at 6.31 that morning, a nurse and a doctor come into my room 
and he looked at me and said, we have some news for you, Lieutenant. We have some news for you. And we're here to tell you that you've been killed in action. And you're going home to see God. This is, in my mind, I'm going through this. Wow. And they were standing at my bed, and they said, if you look to your right, you're going to see God. And I looked to my right, and I saw this big ball of light. I heard this loud explosion. The next thing I knew, I was on the floor. Didn't know how I got there. And the psychologist come down and told me it was a near-death experience. And that uh, I'm here for a while longer. I didn't go see God. Apparently, God didn't want me. Yet. (laughs) Yet. But these are things that occurred when you're there. You know, there were occasions when the little candy stripers would come there and, and bring me a book or something. The chaplain would come by and pray for me. But up until that time, I was isolated. You couldn't come in my room except for family. So I had to go through all that and they skin grass. <laughs> there was 10 months you were in hospital for? I, I don't re- really remember. They let me out for, for a while. And uh, about, about that, I, I remember I got out of the house, out of the hospital, uh, March 12th, 1968. Yeah, and that's pretty much a year since mm-hmm. when you when you got blown up. So mm-hmm. now, what about um, just just to, and this will be the last thing, and I want to wrap this up because we've been talking for over two hours, and I want to be mindful of your time. But a big, you know, part is the abandonment of these these you know uh, Vietnam era warriors. Um, you talked about the opium, you know. I mean, excuse me, the uh, the um, Oh God, why am I forgetting the name now? Morphine? The morphine, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, the morphine, you know, and now, now we see so many of our yeah. veterans that are, you know, mm-hmm. stuck in addiction, that are homeless. Mm-hmm. And again, that era seems to be, you know, a large portion of that. You, I know that you said you had the demons, you went to some dark places, your mm-hmm. marriage was strained for a while, mm-hmm. Dottie stood by you. So just going to walk me through where the, the, the lowest part that you found yourself and then, and then what were the tools that you personally used to get yourself back out of that? Well, I looked out the window one morning and I said, you know, all this pain I'm going through, I can open up this window. Hmm. Dark places. God kept it shut. Kept it shut. It didn't open. Window of a tall building you're talking mm-hmm. about. Yeah. I was on the 14th floor. And so, you're right, we could talk for weeks about how I got to this place here without my wife and my child. Uh, you're so kind to come all the way up from Florida to talk to an old guy. Talk to a fascinating old guy. <laughs> um, the hell of a story. Well, if they give me the Medal of Honor, uh, 
maybe somebody will hear your story and say, yeah, give it to the guy. Well, I mean, it's like I said, it's it's listened to a lot now, and there's a you know a large community that 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 does listen. So I hope it helps. I hope it's part of the yeah. the push. But you said about the, the the window not not opening. What were some of the things you used that that helped you heal, helped you grow, helped you get over that survivor's guilt and the inability to save, and all these things that a lot of this audience are familiar with? Well, I I keep saying it's God. Uh, not everybody believes in God. I believe in God because I can't explain my being here. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. My wife and my child up in Arlington, and I feel guilty because I felt like I should be there. They were the innocent ones. When I stood at their graves, I made my report to my wife. And my son told him I'll see them soon. But I gotta get used to this thing one of these days. <laughs> it's always at the most poignant moments as well that uh, the air freshener goes off. Well, how do you get through something like this that I've been through? Uh, I hadn't put all that together yet. I went all the way to California. After I left my wife and son up in Arlington and a lot of other friends up there and on the Vietnam Memorial, it's a process, I think. Uh, you know, I don't know if I can point to one thing that helped me get through the violence of war. I killed my first person when I was not quite 20 years old yet. But that was many, many years ago. And about a month ago, some young people took me out to a firing range and put some targets up and said, Major, why don't you go ahead and take a few shots? The first time I fired a weapon in years. But I never lost it. It was a dead shot. Dead shot. I didn't see anything in the target. I wasn't aiming at any person, just a regular silhouette target. But uh, I can always shoot. I'm alive today because I was that good of a shot. But it's not something that I would want to do anymore. A friend of mine sent me a, a 9 millimeter from Czechoslovakia. And that's the weapon that I, I use. But it was awkward for me. Uh, I'm no longer a violent man. Uh, we're going to bring some homeless people over here and going to feed them. We just did a barbecue for single mothers. And, you know, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be remembered as major capers. Kill more people in law loud. I don't know that I'm happy with I don't want... My tombstone is already there. My name is on it with my wife and my son. I don't want people to, to see that with such a wonderful woman and a wonderful child and with a guy like me. And a lot of these things I did because I wanted to do. 
wasn't by accident. I, you know, I hunted them down and I would, I would track them. I'm talking about the enemy soldiers who created so much violence on farmers that they were leaving those areas. I would track them and they would find their stool and I'd pick it up in my hands and I'd test it to see if it was hard or soft that I knew how I knew how far they were gone. And then I tracked them and I killed every one of them. My son Bill, who was here a little bit a while ago, he said, you just shouldn't talk about that. That's just, that's the world I lived in. And people need to hear that, the rawness of those stories. You know, how do you pick up stool and if it's hard, they've been gone for a while. If it's soft, I got them. I got you. You're like an animal. You sleep on the ground. You eat one meal a day. And everything you have is ammunition and grenades. But you keep going. And you think you're doing the right thing. But there are things in my line of work, when they drop you behind the lines, so we'll pick you up in four or five days, and you come back and tell us how many you killed, how many was wounded, how many prisoners you come back, then you write it down on a board. And then you go back out in two days, and you come back and you write more names on that board. And they give you two beers when you come back. After all the hell you've gone through, they give you two beers. What a great job you've done. Now you drink these two beers as our reward for you killing so many human beings. But that's what we did. And some of the guys got drunk and they were so happy. Hey, I, we killed 15 today. We killed 20 today. We dropped in 175s, 155s, artillery. Our choppers came in and, and you could see parts of bodies lying around. Yeah. And you sort of get addicted to that lifestyle. And then you're too sick to eat. When you wash your hands, you got a human being stool in your hands. And you got flies all around. How do you, how do you, you know, how do you uh, measure that? And you come back and you write a letter to your loved ones and today I killed 25 enemy soldiers and I blew his head off. Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. Our 
I'll be home soon. And we're going to go to the movies. The dichotomy of the human brain. Yeah, I'll be 84 in a few months. And the doctor told me a few weeks ago that for me, the clock is ticking. You have, you, you like an old car. The parts are falling off now. But if you can equate your heart to an engine, it's still ticking. Still ticking. He said, I'm not God, but uh, you're an amazing human being. He was a new doctor, Naval Hospital. He said, I don't think I've seen anything quite like you. Said, I don't know what to say. I look at all your scars and I read your, your history and whatever and the, the battles you fought. Uh, it's, it's amazing you're still here. But he also said that uh, he wasn't God so he could tell me. He couldn't tell me the time or the place. But he said, even though the clock is ticking, I look forward to seeing you for a long time. I'm not only your doctor, I'm your friend. And if you need me, you call me. I'll be here. And we'll go down the road together. Round the road together. I said, thanks, Doc. See you next time. Then they transferred him. <laughs> That's a horrible ending to that story. <laughs> I was supposed to say you found an Sorry. amazing doctor. <laughs> <laughs> they transferred him. <laughs> Wait a minute. What happened? Oh, but anyway, son, I'm going to uh, figure out a time to show you the documentary. Beautiful. And uh, a lot of what we just talked about is in the documentary. It's an hour and a half long. Uh, Hollywood produced it, won four awards so far. It hadn't been on the market as of yet. And I'm supposed to get a percentage of this for my foundation. So let's talk about that first. So tell, tell everyone about the foundation and, and um, where they can donate, where they can support it. Well, I have the foundation I started when my son passed away. And uh, again, the demons come home. When I lost my son, uh, I had some pretty bad thoughts. My wife was not at the hospital. I had to call her and tell her that she had been diagnosed with cancer. When I called her to talk, come to the hospital, we lost our only child. Bill is my godson. Uh, and I became angry. And a chaplain come in to the hospital room out there and try to pray with me, but I told him to stand back. It's not the time. And I want everybody to walk easy now. Nobody talks now. Nobody talks. 
Then my wife come over and held me by the hand. Said, let's, let's go home now. We left our child there. And uh, at the hospital. Then we buried him. It seemed like the next day we buried her. The demons kept sitting on my shoulder saying, you know, all those people who killed your wife and your son, let's go do that. And I thought, well, I got nowhere to go now. Everything I had is gone. So I'll make them pay. But my wife took all my weapons. You know, I'd been given a collection of weapons, different people. They don't have me more, but I she, she took them and locked them all up. She says, I know that look. And I gave them away. I got one pistol now that uh, a friend of mine is a Czechoslovakian nine millimeter but I was angry wasn't angry at God but I was angry because how could this happen to my family so I want somebody to feel the pain that I'm feeling but then God stepped in again no 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 and I went to California went to therapy every Tuesday at one o'clock Finally got an apartment and lived in hotels and ate in some little dive somewhere. Trying to get it all together. But God stepped in and brought me home. And a young God Sunday picked me up at the airport and brought me home. And here I am now. So the time for me, you never know. You might come back when I'm 105 years old. My grandmother's about to turn 104, so that's a, <laughs> that's a possibility. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll show you the documentary. And what's the documentary called, for people listening? The Legend of Major Jim Capers. Beautiful. The book is entitled Faith Through the Storm. I've written other pieces. Uh the book, I wrote a little piece about Devil's Mountain. You probably read that. Yes, sir. Uh, so I, you know, I, as I try to come up with different things, I had another young man that was a Iraqi vet, and he had PSD, PTSD, real serious. So he would come to visit me here at the house before my wife passed. And after my wife passed, I moved him to California with me. And he lived in my apartment with me. Very nice young man. From His name was Rooster Dixon. Rooster. Wonderful young man. He went home to Georgia to see his folks, and he got shot and killed. And the police had surrounded his house. He called me on the phone and told me, oh, Major, they got me surrounded. I said, stand down. I'll come get you. 
Next thing I knew, the phone went dead. They'd kill him. So I went to his funeral in Georgia. Met his mother and father and his sister. I delivered the, delivered the eulogy at Rooster's funeral. Wonderful young man. He went to California to, to help me out. We both had PTSD. We were holding on together. It seemed like there was always so much tragedy. So much tragedy, you know? And uh, I try to catch my breath. I get these emails from somebody that I served with years ago to remind me that uh, someone that I knew years ago just passed away. And yesterday I talked to a young man named, his name is uh, Mark American Horse. And uh, he'd called me a few weeks ago, and he and his girlfriend of 30 years was going to get married. And he asked me, could he get married at my home? And he want me to give away the bride and want me to have my pastor conduct the services. He called me two days ago, this Thursday, he called me Tuesday. And he said he had stage four cancer. Oh, God. And he had to cancel a wedding. He didn't think he'd make it. And I talked to his Sarah's fiance. I told her I didn't know what to, what to say. He wanted to be married at his commanding officer's house. And we were just getting our yard backyard ready for that wedding. He was going to bring members of his tribe with him. Uh, American horse, good man. He's keepers trained. And now we had to cancel the wedding. So, you know, these are, he's still alive though. And I gave him a direct order. You'll be here for this wedding. And I'll be here. And I talked to Sarah, his wife. It's a wonderful love story. Wonderful love story. But it seemed like sometimes I can't catch I can't catch my breath. They give me sixteen pills a day for PTSD, for sleeping, for breathing, for grieving and for pain and for God knows whatever else. And uh, I didn't know you were coming today. Uh, Bill called me and said, guess who's coming today? <laughs> That's guess right. Who's coming to dinner today. Huh? I had forgotten. Uh, Carmen had told me. But I really had forgotten. Well, it was a few. I think you know we arranged it a few weeks ago. And then I, I only... Asked her if we could do it in person. I think it was only a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, there, there's plenty of room to forget because, um, you know, that's why I even called this morning to make sure because I know it had been a while and I forget. My mind's like a colander. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you came. You know, it's been good for me and I'm a little apprehensive uh, 
going out and talk to these young widows and mothers in San Diego, the ghost of our mothers. And uh, what do you say? What do you say? But I'll be there with them. I'll go to dinner with them. And they'll want to know how did I get over losing my wife and my child. I don't know. I don't have the answers. I wish I knew. How did I get through all of the hardships? I lost my mother, my father, my sister, aunts, uncles, everybody I knew, they're all gone now. So I pretty much live by myself. Carmen comes in and helps out. Bill lives next door. They all looking to take care of me. Then you show up and bring back all these memories. I hope what we've talked about, that you remember these homeless veterans, the ones that got PTSD. I'll leave you with this, then I'm through talking. During the Civil War, there was a song, Johnny Comes Marching Home. When I was a child, I used to sing this song, Johnny Comes Marching Home. Well, during the Vietnam War, we had a lot of young Johnnies that grew up wanting to serve their country. They joined the Army, Navy, the Air Force, Marines. They went to Vietnam, did the best they could. But when Johnny come home, nobody gave a damn about Johnny anymore. He spilled his guts on battlefields, Hamburger Hill, Quezon. Now he's home, he can't find a job. Nobody wants him anymore. But Johnny is home now. Who cares for Johnny now? What does Johnny do? He can't find a job because he went to Vietnam. He has memories of all of the friends he lost over there. And they tell him, well, you can go to Washington and see a monument, look at their names. That's what Johnny gets piece of marble but Johnny's home now what are we going to do with Johnny he signed the contract he did what he was supposed to do he went overseas and served his country now but Johnny's home what do we do with Johnny now well since nobody had the answers Johnny couldn't find a job He tried his hand at marriage. That didn't work out for him. So Johnny says, you know, I gave everything I had to this country. And then some. But nobody wants to give me anything now. Nothing. So Johnny goes out on the street and begs for 
a few dollars. And he goes and gets the hotel. He goes in that room and locks the door. And he shoots himself. Johnny's home now. But you don't have to worry about Johnny anymore. Because Johnny's gone. Johnny's come marching home. But nobody gave a damn. Let's go buy some hamburgers. Who cares about Johnny? What's on TV tonight? But there's a young man named James who come on away from Florida to hear that story. I hope you won't forget it. We have a lot of Johnnies that come home. We can't afford to forget those Johnnies, those veterans that 22 commit suicide every day. Yeah.